0: Well, I'm so glad you're here. Now, tonight we're gonna do something a little differently. I'm going to take periodic breaks as we go through the book of Revelation and summarize what we've done so far. Because I made you a promise, you can understand this book. You can apply this book. This book is not meant to be difficult to understand. And I'm not saying there aren't some things that aren't difficult to understand, but you can understand this book. And so I think it's important because when we start chapter 4, there's a huge transition that takes place that the seven churches, the message to the seven churches are just so fundamentally important to understanding the book. When you talk about Revelation, and you talk as I, this is from some of my notes from the very first message in the series, you can't help but think about flying beast. You can't help but think about flaming bowls and trumpets and things of that nature. You look at angels, and there was a movie out not too long ago that our kids and I watched together called Fantastic Beasts. And in it was all these fantastic beasts that this boy from Britain brought over and was capturing. And I thought, well, that's a lot like what you read in the book of Revelation. But that was all symbolism. We've talked about that. The book of Revelation makes really good sense. The book of Revelation was easy to understand for the people that received the revelation. That's important to understand because, and this is what I want you to remember, the first century church, there were educated people, but there were also uneducated people in that church as well. There were a lot of people that couldn't read, and there were a lot of people who could read. The Jewish people were especially adept at reading because education was really key to the Jewish survival as a nation. They were taught over, if you read the book of Proverbs, if you read Deuteronomy, you will see over and over how families were encouraged to teach and generations were encouraged to teach. And so oral education and literacy were very big. But among the Gentiles, there was a lot of illiteracy. If you think about the medieval church in particular, Uh, many of the priests could not even read themselves. They recited from memory what they had been taught, but they couldn't read it off a page. And the people who came to church, they couldn't read or write as well. They were often servants, serfs, or peasants. And the whole idea of stained glass came out of a way to give people images that they could look at and remember the Bible stories with. And that's what these images are all about that we have here. But you also have to understand that the symbolism was a part of their language. We have symbols today. If I do this, it means, well, unless you were a fan of Richard Nixon. Okay? And so we have all of these symbols. We, we went uh, overseas one time, and um, one of our students, we were in Argentina, one of our students flashed the AOK sign out at the... Uh, the uh, driver who had helped us, and it just infuriated him. I had never heard before that that was a bad symbol. But we learned real quickly when in Argentina, you don't do this. Uh, We also learned that in another country that we were ministering in, My wife went to sit her purse down on the floor by the chair like she often does in a restaurant. And immediately our host says, no, don't put your purse there because putting your purse on the floor, that's a symbol of being a prostitute. And you will be so, Becky quickly grabbed up her purse. I said, don't bring that thing tomorrow night. You know, you don't need it. So, you know, symbolism, there are things that we understand from culture to culture about symbolism, and we'll be getting more and more into that symbolism. We looked at three different ways of that revelation and the return of the Lord is talked about, and that's premillennialism, that Jesus will return before the thousand years that is prophesied in the book, postmillennialism, that Jesus will come after the millennial period, and then there are those who believe that that period of a thousand years is just a figurative speech, it's not a... Literal thing, and those are called amelinist, and then there are people that are called pamelinist, and those are the people that believe it will all pan out in the end. So that's important to understand as we get into this book. Because as we talked earlier, when you get to the seven letters, there are some people try to make those letters as dispensations where God dealt with people differently. He's always the same yesterday, today, and forever. Can you say amen? amen? That's important to remember because. Although I'm not a dispensationalist, I can see some truth in dispensationalism. However, where I really part company is that God deals with people differently. Brothers and sisters, they look forward to the cross in the Old Testament. You and I look back to the cross of what Christ accomplished for us at Calvary, and we all look forward to the return of Jesus Christ today. So that's the key, I think, to, to understanding that. So if you would stand with me, and I want to read you just three verses from John chapter 1 to get started with. This letter is from John, John the Apostle, the John that wrote the first, second, and third epistle, plus the Gospel of John. John would have probably been close to 90 old this time. This is a letter from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come from the seven soul, sevenfold spirit, which is probably... a. Uh, a reference back to the spirit of counsel and wisdom and peace that would rest upon him. But it's just another way of referring to the Holy Spirit, not seven spirits. If you'll notice, spirit is is singular there. The sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things. The first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. And if you were here then, we talked about the importance of these descriptors. Christ's faithfulness, his witness, the first to rise from the dead. We talked about what the glory meant, and we looked at the glory for a little bit. But now, all glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Let it be. So be it. Look. He comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we just kind of go back and summarize and pull back out those lessons we've learned from these first three chapters. God, we started in this in February. I ask you that you would just touch our understanding, bring back to our remembrance so that this is just one more way of locking down these words in our heart. For you have told us you would bless us if we read it, listened to it, and obeyed it. And so, Father, we covet that blessing from you tonight that we might walk in the glory and the light of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody agreed and said, amen. Amen. God bless you. I got a lot of ground to cover tonight, so I'm going to move kind of fast. And if you have questions, you know, I'll stick around and we'll talk about your questions afterwards. If Genesis was all about God, 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 where we studied origins, and Revelation is about Jesus, 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 and that's the key factor you need to remember. It's not about flying beasts. It's not about fantastic beasts. It's not about angels. It's not about flaming pots. It's about Jesus. We looked at the different ways of interpreting Revelation. There's the idealist, and those are the people who just believe that what we take out of Revelation is timeless principles, I affirm that, that there are timeless principles that we can take from this book. However, it's flawed in the idea, if you remember, we talked at length about this, because they only see the Revelation as a book of principles, and they don't adhere to the whole message of Revelation. There are still issues for the church that have to be addressed at Revelation addresses, and we've looked at those with the seven churches. There are the historists. Those are those that believe that Revelation gives us a very detailed map of what's going to happen in history and time until the times of Jesus. That line of reasoning was was strong, Especially during the medieval time, there was an attempt to bring that back, but nobody could ever keep fixing the dates. And so when you get to date fixers, those are the people that you're dealing with who want to fix the date. Remember, we talked about this several times in the series already. No man knows the time. No man knows the hour. He's going to come like a thief in the night. Amen? So never forget that. Then there's the preterists. Those are the people who read Revelation as the church understood it. When they read the revelation, they understand that these seven letters were read to all seven churches. In other words, they were reading one another's mail, but these seven letters had a message for all of the church. The problem with the preterist is they want to insist that everything that happens, that's prophesied about in the Revelation, that it was fulfilled in the Revelation. And there are some things like the great white throne judgment. That has not been fulfilled yet. The coming down of the city of God, the holy city upon the earth, who just the bottom level of the holy city would take all of the Middle East and Western Europe all together, just that bottom level of the holy city coming down to earth, those things have not been fulfilled yet. And then there's the futurist, and those are the people who believe that there are some events that are still waiting to be fulfilled. I happen to also believe that. But it's flawed in this sense that the futurists Ignore the book of Revelation because they say it doesn't do us any good to study it. It's what happens when people do not come to this book with the confidence that God wants you to have. You can read this book. You can understand this book, and you will be blessed for reading and obeying this book. Amen? And so the future says, well, it's not gonna happen until the end, so there's really no need in me bothering about it. It's like the young man who decides, you know, I'm not gonna get insurance because I'm young, I'm never gonna need it, and then all of a sudden he's diagnosed with cancer when he's very young or he has a severe life-threatening injury and he can't work any longer. So it's the person who's trying to put everything off. And then there's the eclectic, and that's the people who kind of do what I have done in life. And that is, I've looked at the strengths of all of these things and they're very legitimate, and you kind of mix together the idealist, the preterist, and the futurist, and you take the strengths from it. You address the weaknesses, and you take the strengths, and that's the reason that we have to be careful students of the Bible. Reading it, it doesn't, you know, you don't have to have a seminary degree. That helps. It doesn't have, you don't have to have a Bible college degree. That helps. But anybody, if those first century illiterate People could understand those illiterate Gentiles could understand this book with good. Remember, the first century church was primarily a Jewish church. They still, as we looked at several times during the seven churches, they still looked at themselves as a part of Judaism. They, they did not see themselves as separate from Judaism. They saw themselves as a part of Judaism. It was only when the Jewish people kicked them out and said they could no longer be a part that Christianity began to take a singular different approach. It's where, where we today would refer to it as the Judeo- Christian movement. They still consider themselves a part, but those Early, illiterate people were understanding and grasping this. Polycarp, who was discipled by John, and we'll talk about Polycarp in a minute. Polycarp was basically an uneducated person. And when you read the the writings that we do have from Polycarp, they're very simple, they're very easy to understand. And yet, what a powerful man of God. He was appointed as the bishop of the Turkish churches by the apostles themselves, as far as we're able to determine. And when I say as far as we're able to determine you know, we're just looking at the bits of church history from that early time that are extra biblical and from his writings and the writings of others that he refers to. But we do know he was discipled by the Apostle John. Isn't that amazing? And so again, it's so important. We don't want to overvalue education, but we don't want to undervalue education as well. You don't have to be educated to understand the Bible. You don't have to be educated to understand the revelation. You have to be willing to be taught and you have to be willing to study and be a person of prayer. Amen? So it's very important to understand. And then the symbolism of understanding of the Old Testament, all I wanted you to get there was we talked about how important that the symbolism was. 28 times, 28 times Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. There's a lot of Old Testament symbolism that goes on there. John used these symbols in order that he could communicate to us that which can't be communicated without symbols. There's some things that you just... You need a symbol to, un- to, to be able to, 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 to communicate. When we take the communion, Jesus left us with a symbol. He left us with a ritual. And there's something about holding that bread. And there are times when if we were smaller and like in a small group, I would never use those tasteless little wafers that we use around here. I want to use bread. And I want you and I to tear that bread and chew that bread up. I was doing a wedding here one time, and, and the groom and the bride wanted to take communion together, but they wanted to break the bread. They'd heard me ta- 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 teach on this, and so he broke the bread and gave her a piece so big she couldn't chew it up. And I was waiting and waiting, and I finally just said, let's all pray, and I put my hand under her chin and tapped. She spit that big water bread that he put in her mouth, and, you know, and I just held it behind my back for the rest of the wedding. We got the symbolism, Okay. But the point I'm trying to make is something about that. It brings to us the broken body of Christ, the the cup. It brings to us the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus gave us that because he not only wanted us to know historically what had happened, he wanted us to taste it. He wanted us to feel it. He wanted us to smell it. He wanted us to break the bread. He wanted us to drink the juice that had been crushed literally squeezed from the grape and put into a cup to understand what he had done for us. So symbolism is very, very important to all of us, and I think it's so important. The seven churches, and and I think these are in your outline, the seven churches understood every one of these symbols, but their enemies understood some of them as well. If you talk about a city set on seven hills, everybody knew you were talking about the city of Rome, okay? They struck terror into the hearts of the enemies of God because when you looked at these these beasts and when you look at these symbols as we'll go through it, the, the judgments, the thrones, the pots, when you see all this, this struck terror because when the enemies of God would get a hold of these letters and read about it, there was a convicting power. Never forget this. The Bible is alive. You can read Socrates, you can read Plato. You can read any of the old philosophers. You can read the new philosophers. And you can read good books and learn from them. But I'm going to tell you something there's something dangerous about reading the Bible. It is a dangerous book. It will change your life. This week, President French, the president of France, Macron, has been severely criticized, is under attack because he went to the churches there in Paris and says, you have something to teach us from the Bible about how to handle our finances and how to handle our our families, how to handle their finances. He is under severe attack because that is illegal to do in France. It is illegal to bring the church into anything in France. And so just by going with his meeting and wanting to talk to them, it's got his nation in an uproar right now. Friends, I want to tell you something. The Bible is a dangerous book. And so when we get people to reading it, it's very important, important that we remember the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. Symbols gave confidence to the people of God. If I was to stop wearing my wedding band, Becky would have an issue with that. If Becky was to stop wearing her wedding band, I would have an issue with that. Those symbols bring comfort to us. The cross says, I want a cross in the sanctuary. And, and Bob, thank you again for building us this beautiful cross. And it took a long time, but we finally got the light working in there, right? Didn't we, buddy? And, uh, you know, the cross is a symbol. I mean, there aren't many people that walk around with the equivalent of an electric chair hanging around their necks. And that's what the cross was. You know, there aren't many people walking around with a hangman's noose, that's what the cross was. There aren't many people walking around with a medieval rack, that's what the cross was. Something is precious to us that was a cruel method of torturing and hurting other people, and they have a timeless nature to them, but they also have great, great emotional power. Well, we also looked at that Genesis, the reason we went and spent two and a half years with Genesis is because Genesis deals with us as a new creation. Excuse me, Genesis deals with us with our, with our creation, and Revelation deals with us as a new creation. So Genesis deals with our creation, Revelation deals with us as, our, as a new creation. Revelation chapter one and verse three. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listens to its message and obeys what it says, for the time is near. I love reading you this book, because there's a blessing for me for reading it. And if you want to be blessed, Dad, lead your family and read the book. I would use something like the message if I had children, or I would get a ch- the uh, New International Children's Bible and read out it to them from that. But there's a blessing to reading, there's a blessing to listening, and then there's a blessing to obeying it. So God blesses those who think and pray and obey revelation. Now this next part is where I got, we got just a little deep in the weeds again, but it's important to understand. Revelation is both apocalyptic literature and prophetic literature. It's apocalyptic and it's prophetic. I define for you that apocalyptic unveils. Uh, apocalypse, it means to unveil. It unveils what was hidden, it unveils the meaning of symbols, it unveils, it reveals to us when there's going to be upheaval, it reveals to us when God is going to act decisively in our lives. Revelation, on the other hand, is theological. It's evangelistic. It has to do with ethics. It has to do with a call to repentance. All good preaching, all good teaching should have an apocalyptic element to unveil what the Word of God says, to reveal what God has said, but it also needs to have a strong theological base with an appeal for people to commit their lives to Christ and then live as passionate followers of Christ. We have seen this apocalyptic revelation taking place through all seven letters of these churches. You have the reputation of being alive, but you were dead. I mean, there's a strong word right there to a church. You have a reputation of works, but you have left your first love. There's strong apocalyptic in Revelation. Revelation is repent, return to your first love. You don't love me, and you don't love one another the way you used to. Repent, that's Revelation. That's both of these things at work. And if you understand that's taking place in this book, You will start, as you read it, more and more, you'll start beginning to pick apart where God is unveiling something and where God is calling us to repentance. All preaching is declarative, but all preaching is also calling and inviting. I put it like this when I teach pastors on preaching and I talk to our staff. Preaching is when we cast out the net. We're casting out the Word, we're unveiling something. Once we come to the close or land the plane, so to speak, we're pulling the net in. It's not enough to take off. I want to land. Let me say you didn't get that. It's not a take enough to take off. I want to land. You know, taking off's fun, landing's more fun. Okay? Once I get down on the ground, there, Dick's got some harrowing tales about flying by the seat of his pants that we've talked about. You need, Dick Krug is a mine, gold mine of stories. And coming down beneath the clouds to look where he was at and then going back up again. You want to land. And that was the bottom line of of Dick's story is, is getting that plane down. All good preaching wants to pull the net. All good teaching wants to pull the net. It's why we tell you in your small groups, have an empty chair because you want to always remember you want to be inviting lost people to come to that. Revelation, excuse me, apocalyptic literature shows us the freedom of God. God is absolutely free to do whatever he wants to do. He's God, he's Lord. But Revelation, we are created in the image of God. God gives us the freedom to choose. Choose you this day whom you're gonna serve. You don't have to respond to God's call. You can go on and live as an enemy. Revelation is full of teaching about there are enemies that will cause the people of God to suffer as you go through the revelation. He will say to some of them, you're going to suffer 10 days. You're going to suffer 10 days. There's a beginning. There's an end. And you say, God, why don't you just go ahead and stop that? Why don't you slay his enemies? That's not how it works, friends. That's not how it works. We are servants of the Most High God. He puts us where He needs us, and He uses us as He wants to. So, what the bottom line of this apocalyptic revelation response in the Scripture is, I've got to respond to revelation since it is written for me too. This book is written for me and Becky and our children. James chapter 1 and verse 22. But don't just listen to God's words. You must do what it says, otherwise you are fooling yourselves. <clears throat> couple of things just real quickly we talked about. there were some, just a few, of the prophecies in revelation, that were not going to be understood until the very end of time. But most of them were to be understood. And you can look at chapter 10, verse 4 and chapter 22 and verse 10, for if you want to write those down and look at that. There's something else I want to point out to you here. I haven't been able to find. And this is what has caused, I think, the church so many problems. I have not been able to find in the history of the early church, nor can I find it in the New Testament, where the different lines that we have drawn about the coming of our Lord, I can't find those in the New Testament, nor can I find those in the early church some churches, you've got to believe that there's going to be a premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture in order to be considered an orthodox Christian. I believe that. I believe in a pre-tribulational, premillennial rapture of the church. I believe that. I have many friends who don't believe that. They believe that we're going to go Partway through the tribulation. Then there are some that believe we're going to go all the way through the tribulation. Then there are some that believe there's going to be no tribulation. Then there are some that could, believes that there's going to be a millennial. I believe there's going to be a millennial. I have reasons, I can, but I can't find anywhere in the New Testament where those fun, fine lines that we have drawn are points of fellowship. And it's the reason why at Woodland we do not make those a point of fellowship. What I do find is a confession throughout the New Testament and a confession in the early church is that Jesus will come again in like manner at a time that you think not. And so it's the personal return of Jesus Christ. Trying to detail it and trying to make it into a little box that you can fit it in That just does not seem to fit anything else about God that I know. The only consensus that I can find is that Jesus will personally, literally, and visibly come again. Billy Graham, from a book I recommended to you, Billy Graham says, we need to stop getting lost in the small brushstrokes and debating the details, and we need to step back and catch the majesty of the book's grand design, which is Jesus is coming again. Now, here's what I do find, and this is what people don't like to talk about, because it's fun to talk about, you know, are we reading this in the newspaper today, or are we hearing this on the news? What nobody ever talks about is the fact that throughout the Bible, and especially in the Revelation, there is a specific call to live a holy life. Oh, no. Now you've gone to clothesline preaching. Now you're about to step on my toes. God calls us to live a holy life. God says that every one of us that have this hope that Jesus is coming again, we're gonna live, we're gonna, we're gonna purify ourselves. We're gonna live prepared for the return of the Lord. Write these verses down, and you just may wanna look at them later. Mark 13, 33 through 37. 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 7. Titus chapter 2, verse 12 through 13. I told you I got a lot of ground to cover. I'll give them to you later if you want them. All right. Now, I gave you a whole long list. I want to go over a few of those things with you. Revelation teaches us God is awesomely majestic. These are not in your outline. You may want to write them down. If you have the notes from before, you can get them online. You, you, can, you can get all of these online at our website. But God is awesomely majestic and sovereign in all he does. Nobody can stop God. Nobody can stop God. I remember hearing as a young man, back when there was something still called the iron iron curtain and something called the bamboo curtain, there was no curtain that could stop God. When Jesus ripped the veil from top to bottom, when he was crucified for our sins, there's no curtain, wall, there's nothing that could stop our Lord. Amen? Second thing that the Revelation teaches us is that Jesus will ultimately bring about our deliverance because of his sacrifice for our sins. That's the reason Paul says the cross is the center of all we preach. Never, ever forget the cross. Third thing that I see in the book of Revelation throughout is that sin never goes unpunished. Sin never goes unpunished. Those who commit evil against God and against God's people, God will wreak vengeance upon them. Something else in the seven churches, we've looked at this. We'll look at one of them tonight just briefly. God doesn't need a nation. God doesn't need the earthly powers, the worldly powers. God can take a small remnant of people like you and me and accomplish His will. And that should bring great comfort to all of us. God can take a small remnant of people and accomplish His will in our lives. This thing is bothering me. So don't get caught up like so many people do today in the bigness of things, in the bigness, your small group can change your subdivision. Your small group could change our community. There have been so many great movements of God that have started with just a few people praying. Look at the the disciples. Look at the 120 that were gathered. The theme of the remnant runs throughout the book of Revelation. There's one other thing, and there are many more I gave you, but there's one other thing that I want to point out, and it's something that nobody likes to talk about, but it's true. We have brothers and sisters today that are doing it, and they were doing it in this book, and that's part of the reason this book was, was, was written. Jesus is worth dying for. Jesus is worth dying for. And I've never been put at this place where my life has been threatened for being a Christian, I've been threatened, I've had knives drawn on me, I've had guns pulled on me, I've been chased down, I've been threatened, but never because I felt like, you know, I was going to die, I just knew I was going to be okay. You know, I think I shared with you one time when I was working in mental health, I had a, a patient, we don't know how he got the butcher knife, but he got a huge butcher knife and came running at me and dove, knife extended, and it was like he hit a glass wall just like that. And went straight down to the ground, knife and everything. And the um, orderlies that were there pounced upon him. And I will never forget that in my whole life. Because in that moment, I just, you know, not because I was a Christian, just this guy had really deep mental problems. And he hit a wall. I'm telling you, there is a living God until it's your time you do what the Lord called you to do. Amen? If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for the gospel's sake, you'll gain it. Well, let's look quickly at the seven churches now. We're moving out of chapter 1 into chapter 2. Ephesus was the busy church. The busy church. The Lord said to this church, I know all the things you do. Pastor Rick, we're a fairly busy church, aren't we? There's always something going on around here, isn't it? And so I pray over this letter that we would be careful because if we're not careful, we can get so busy trying to be sure that we're doing all the right things, having all the right ministries, safeguarding the ministry of the church. And if we're not careful, we will not love God and love people. We'll get busy busy about building an organization rather than allowing Christ to build His church, which is, which is an organism. The moment we start trying to maintain an organization, that's when we're going to die. But as long as we see ourselves as a body, an organism, there can be health and we can be growing. Ignatius pastored this church about two decades after this epistle was written. Ignatius had been discipled, we know this, by Polycarp, who had been pastored by John. It's important to understand they heeded this call to repentance because Ephesus experienced a revival. Ephesus was the predominant city, was also the closest city to Patmos. But what God was saying to them is, you are so busy with doing good things. He said, he complimented him. He said, you're doing good things, but you're so busy doing good things, you've forgotten how to love each other and you've forgotten how to love me. So return to your first love. The first love was Jesus Christ. The first love was a love for one another in the body of Christ. And friends, it just goes with everything else that John wrote in his gospel and in the three epistles. How can you say you love God whom you can't see if you can't love your brother whom you can see? Webb, well, I love you, dear brother. I really do. And, I, I, you know, you're, but you're easy to love. You're always kind. You're always affirming. I don't see any fatheads out here tonight. But, um, you know, it's kind of hard to love a fathead sometimes, and it's. Anybody know any fat heads? Don't put your hands up. (laughs) Anybody married? Never mind. (laughs) You see, it's the difficult people in the body of Christ sometimes, but we're called to love. And he gives the promise. He says, he'll give to them the tree of life, which is eternal life. The Smyrna church is the suffering church. This is one of the two churches that Jesus did not have any criticism for. But notice what he said. He said, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. In other words, he lets them know you're going to go through suffering. He lets them know you're going to go through pain. This is the church that we talked about contrast. Remember we talked about those that say they're Jews, but they're not? Those that tell us that uh, they're dead, but they're alive. I mean, they say they're alive, but they're dead. This is a church of a lot of contrast but it's a suffering church. This was the church that betrayed, or excuse me, this was the community, not the church. This was the Jewish synagogue that betrayed Polycarp that I keep talking about tonight. Polycarp was the one that when they went to tie him to the stake, he says, there's no need to tie me to the stake. I'll stand here willingly. And because he was so beloved, because he was so beloved, the entire community was crying out for his deliverance. And he told them not to deliver him because he did not want anybody to think he had compromised his faith. And when they lit the flames around him, the magistrate of the city who happened to love Polycarp and respect Polycarp commanded that he be stamped in the heart with a spear in order that he wouldn't actually burn to death and be suffering that way. You see, I think we forget sometime the power of the witness of the suffering church, I think because we love our comforts and our creature comforts, especially in America. But dearly, those of you that are here tonight, don't ever forget, because we're prosperous and because we are secure and because we are safe, don't ever forget that we have brothers and sisters tonight that are paying with their very lives to be able to do what you're doing here in a climate-controlled building on a padded pew that you'll go home to a comfortable room tonight. Don't ever forget that because God has some wonderful things to say to them about this. There is a portion of the Scripture that I pointed out to you that has been often used to refer to Jewish people as with anti-Semitic remarks. And that was, if you remember, we talked about the synagogue of Satan. And this is where I wanted to bring out symbolism and language again. This was a Jewish saying. This was not a Gentile saying. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which is about as Jewish as you can get, the Dead Sea Scrolls refers to certain people within Judaism that did not believe with the Essenes there at Dead sea, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. They referred to them as the synagogue of Satan. Well, literally, it says the synagogue of Baal, which is the synagogue of Satan. They referred to them as the synagogue of Satan. So this was not Gentile Defamation. This was how the Jews would speak to one another. And this is what God said. Those early Christians and those Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying. So what he's saying to us, and what I brought out to you that night, is all of us will have to face a test. All of us will have to face a test. So you have to live keeping your eyes upon Christ. Keeping your eyes. The prize of our high calling is not streets of gold. The high... The prize of our high calling is not gates of pearl. And to be honest with you, streets of gold and gates of pearl don't float my boat anyway. Okay, they really don't. But Jesus, that's the prize. There was a song we used to sing when I was a little boy. It's called, Oh, I Want to See Him Look Upon His Face, There to Sing Forever of His Saving Grace. That song still resonates inside of me right now because I can't wait to see Him. There are times when I'll say, Lord, I'm ready whenever You are. Now, that doesn't mean I have a death wish. I enjoy life. But what I'm saying is, I can't wait to see him, and so I hope he comes by the rapture, okay? That's how I'm ready to see him, you know? Just let the trumpet sound and let's go. But you run this race by keeping your eyes upon Jesus, and the promise is, especially to these suffering believers, many who will lose their lives or sacrifice their lives, they will be resurrected to eternal life. And it's the thing that I say at every funeral when we leave the cemetery, and that is one day these graves will give up the lives of all the believers. Number three was the Pergamum church. It was the confused church. This was a fun church to preach about. This is the church that Jesus says, you remain loyal to me. You refuse to deny me. Now, there was an element in the church. Um, I'm going to make all of y'all the bad people, okay? All of you sitting over there. So stop smiling. You know, you're mean. You're deceived. You're... You're, you're, you're doctrinally incorrect. I'm going to make all of y'all, y'all are going to be Balaam's people. These are Jezebel's people. You are Balaam's people. Y'all look more like Balaam than y'all, y'all look like Jezebel over there. You are going to be the church. <laughs> you're going to be, oh, I see Pastor Mark there. We're going to change this. Now, here's, here's the deal. This was a church, there was an element that had remained loyal, They had remained faithful. They refused to deny Christ. But they tolerated those whose teaching was like Balaam, which, if you remember, we talked about Balaam was a greedy prophet, and he led the people astray from money uh, into sexual immorality in order to bring the curse of God upon them. And then there was, and I didn't put it here in the the verse because I wanted to keep your notes brief, but you can go back and look. Then there was those who followed the teaching of Jezebel. And Jezebel was somebody that all of those Jewish Christians and people would have understood. Jezebel was a very wicked, conniving woman. We talked about how she uh, was was a daughter of the priestess of Baal, how that she was a daughter that was Was manipulating her husband Ahaz and would even kill people to get her way, and how that she appealed to all of the sensual pleasures of life. There was sexual immorality involved with Jezebel, if if you read this, and her followers. But you were so sweet and so kind that you didn't understand that when it comes to the church, all are welcome. But when it comes to membership in the church, there is a bar you've got to set, okay? And you can't allow people to come in to the church and to membership that can say, you know, the Bible is not the Word of God, or you don't have to be faithful to your wife, or you don't have to be faithful to your husband, or you can participate in sins. And Jesus has some strong words. As a matter of fact, He says to them, I have the sharp two-edged sword, And the sword in the Old Testament was always a symbol of war. It was always a symbol of warfare. And and God's sword, he would execute his wrath against his enemies. In other words, he's saying, I am going, if you're not going to handle it, I'm going to make war on Balaam, and I'm going to make war on Jezebel. So y'all need to be in the altar tonight. Do you understand me? (laughs) Y'all need to be in the altar because he's going to make war. God, He's saying, you're tolerating them, but I'm about to purify my church. And if they don't repent, I'm just going to simply remove your lampstand out of place. We looked at what was the answer to this. The answer to this was having a sound biblical teaching on who was Jesus Christ. He was fully God. He was fully man. We looked at... How important that is. What we believe about Jesus, what we believe about his word, is fundamentally important. There will come a time where you will need more than an emotional attachment to Jesus. If all you have is an emotional attachment to Jesus, you will not die for that emotional attachment. And Jesus is worth dying for. But if he is the Son of God, and if he will do what he says he will do, and he will raise up the dead at the last day, and he will judge the nations of this world and judge the powers of this world, it is insanity to turn your back upon Christ. And that's what he's driving home here. Because Balaam and his greed and Jezebel and her immorality, those are the two driving factors. There was a movie out a few years ago called Sex, Lies, and... What do you, no, sex, lies, and videotape, rock and roll. And that was the 60s, Patti Donahue. And I think it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I don't know how I knew that. And number four, let's look at, oh, 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 I need to give you what that is. Relationships matter. Now, it's very important to understand, when we look at this, we're not saying don't do life with unbelievers. We're talking about the church. We want unbelievers to come. We want unbelievers to be here. But when it comes to the church, the church is made up of those who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. Not just Woodland Church, but the church. And in a local expression of the church, like Woodland Church or First Church or uh, Second Church or what have you, the membership of that church needs to be made up of Christ's followers who are loyal to His words. The promise is there's a new name, a new name, and naming was very important. We talked about that. A new name, Life for Christ. Well, I'm almost out of time. I've got three more to go, so let me quickly move through these. Thyatira was the tolerant church. Thyatira was the tolerant church. If Pergamum compromised doctrinally, Thyatira did something else. I have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who followed this false teaching. Deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan... And then that last sentence, I should have been in there. That's an incomplete thought. They were doing things that violate the Bible. They were taking things that just violated the Scripture. This was a church that um, wasn't a rich church like Laodicea, but it was a, a secure church like this church. It was not a rich church in the sense that some of the churches that I preached in that, you know, they have millions of dollars in the bank and they have endowments and properties and investments. But it was a church more like ours of people who worked in mines, people who worked in fields, and people that would been blue-collar. But it was a church that was also Afraid or unsure, the pastor must not have had the confidence just to boldly teach and preach the word of the Lord. And what they had done by compromising, they were now in danger of violating the confession of faith of who Christ is because revelation is about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And eventually, and I want to be careful how I say this because I've said a number of things in this series that... You know, we've never defined ourselves by attacking other people. We talk about what we do. But I'm very concerned today there's so much publicity given in major magazines and newscasts on churches that have compromised the teaching of the Bible in order to be socially acceptable and to call things that God has said is sin to call them right, to call them holy. And they're not. In churches that have lost confidence in the Bible and do not hold the Bible up to be the inspired, infallible Word of God, that is a danger for us in the body of Christ, but it's also a danger for us as a nation. The strength of a nation is the church and its homes. And we can't ever forget that. You're the salt and the light. You say, Pastor, how do you know it had to do something that violated the scriptural teachings about who Jesus was? Because the promise was the morning star. And the morning star was Jesus. You can find that in the Old Testament and we'll, we'll get back to the morning star as we go through Revelation. He was promising themself. So if you want more of Jesus, don't get into emotionalism. There's nothing wrong with being emotional. But don't go after emotionalism. If you want more of Jesus, don't get into experientialism. There's nothing wrong with good experiences. If you want more of Jesus, get into his word, live out his word, pray with him, talk with him, and he promises you he'll give you the morning star. Christ will arise in your hearts. You will know the living presence of God. And that's my prayer for you always is that you know and experience daily the living presence of God. And let me come back to the communion one more time here. That's the whole purpose of breaking the bread and drinking that cup together because that is Christ's promise to be with us always. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? It's... Well, let's wrap up here. Number five, Sardis is the dying church. Uh, these are just recently preached on, so maybe they're a little more familiar to you. The Lord says to them, You are dead, wake up. <laughs> they have a reputation of being alive. I mean, they're, they're, they're a busy church. They're, they're the church that you ride by and they've got an illuminated sign out front and there's extravaganza on there. There's prayer meetings on there. There's Sunday series on there. There's men's events on there. There's wall game dinners on there. There's women's sisterhood events. They're the church that has a reputation of being alive. I go to places in our community and people know about our church, have a reputation of being alive But if we're not careful, if we're just doing stuff to be doing stuff, then Jesus says we're dead. And we want our worship to be alive. We want our worship to be real. And what he says to this church is, if you don't wake up, I am coming like a thief in the night. And that goes all the way back to Matthew 24, where, you know, I taught on Matthew 25 Sunday morning, goes all the way back to Matthew 24, where Jesus said his coming would be like a thief in the night, you just don't expect it. It's reason the date timing is all wrong. He's going to blow our socks off, literally, when he comes again. Okay? And so it's, it's important to be under that. What has happened to this church is the foundations of this church have become weakened because they are too busy. I have written in one of my Bibles, one of my older Bibles that I used to carry around that's about wore out now. It just simply says, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Were any of you with us a few years ago when we had Andy Sherwood come and do a time management thing for us in the back? There's one person too, all right? We need, we need to do that again, three people that were here. Heinz, you're going to have to do that for us. Uh, Andy Sherwood talked about, and he put it like this, busy, 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 busy. When dads are busy and moms are busy and they get their kids busy, suddenly their spiritual life gets choked out. We want to have events, but we want to have our events with a purpose. And remember, I was so proud of the kids' ministry team on the Saturday extravaganza. I stood up there and watched them and laughed. The gospel was presented so clearly, but those kids were having fun. And some of you parents and grandparents were here dancing that you should have never danced. But it was fun to video you, and I have those videos for sale. He gives them a promise, I will never erase your name from the book of life. And then Philadelphia, my favorite church, this is the little church that could. This is the weak church that he promised to strengthen. He says, I have opened a door, but you have little strength. This is the church that, some people call it the church of love, but I I don't think that's the proper way to look at it. This is the church, it was... It was weak. It was small. It was struggling. But it, they remained faithful. And Jesus says something interesting. Do you remember we talked about the key of David and how that went all the way back to Isaiah and to Ezekiel and, and the key of David that God says, I'm going to give you this key. And then he says something that them very unusual. He says, and, and this is important to remember for the next church. He says, I'm going to open a door for you that no one can shut but I'm going to shut doors that no one can open. And the futility of trying to open a door that God has shut, and sometimes the stubbornness not to walk through the door that God has opened. There was a TV show on that the other day when I walked through the house, it was one of those replay channels, And there were three doors up there, and the the host was going, behind door number one is this. Anybody remember that show? Behind door number two. What was it called? There's about three, four names coming out right now. (laughs) That's okay. You call it whatever you want to. (laughs) We'll tolerate TV programs, but not false doctrines. Anyway, those doors… And I stopped long enough to watch because I can remember as a child seeing that show on TV. And the guy, when they opened the door, he was so disappointed because of what was there. And then they opened up the other two doors and there were nice things behind the other two doors. I can promise you this, whatever door God opens for you, it's gonna be good if you'll walk on through. But whatever door you try to open for yourself, you're gonna end up with shucks. So walk through the door. He says, you've been faithful, and he makes a promise, I'm coming soon. And then Mark, if you'd come on up. The final one is Laodicea we talked about last week. This is the complacent church. And he says, you are like lukewarm water. And let let me just close it with this. This is the church where we're told, be honest about ourselves. Be honest about yourself. Be honest about your life. It doesn't hurt to do some self-appraisal once in a while. You never, you never motivate people. And I believe I can say this honestly before the Lord. I've been tempted to when I've needed something done really quick. But I don't believe that I've ever, and there's some of you been with me a long time, You challenge me on this because I don't want to be a liar. I don't believe I've ever used guilt or shame to motivate anybody, not even in my preaching. I've talked about things that we could be guilty of. I've talked about things we could be ashamed of and we should be ashamed of. But guilt and shame are not the motivators. Because if you're motivated by guilt or shame, Jesus isn't trying to shame this church. He's trying to change this church. You're only motivated by guilt for as long as the guilt lasts. You're only motivated by shame as long as the shame lasts. After a while, you'll heal, but if your heart's not been changed, the shame will go away. After a while, you'll heal, and the guilt will go away. And then we become complacent because the next time, we won't feel as bad or feel as ashamed, and the next time, we won't feel as bad or feel as ashamed, And then we run the danger of the way the King James Version put it, of having a seared conscience. And we become very complacent. And so because we love God and we love one another, we sit down every single day and I was talking with a businessman today who called me. And he asked me the question, he says, I've heard you say over and over, you repent of your sins daily. What do you repent of? I said, oh. I said, there's attitude things. There's impatience things. I said, sometimes behind my smile, there's a. (sighs) I said, you know, understand. I said, you haven't been around long enough. I haven't said it in a long time, so I'll say it again tonight. This has a way of making you look a lot more holier than what you really are. And we all do that. You know, I come to some people's homes sometime and there's an open Bible laying on the coffee table. I'll look at that Bible, the back of it's not even broken. But the verse of it's good, so I'll ask the child, is that Bible always there? No. (laughs) Gotcha. I love what I do. (laughs) And I love your kids and grandkids. You know, we all want to look good. And what we have to be careful of is this complacency that can creep into our life. And so Jesus says something to this church. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. In the last church, he says, I'll open a door that no one can shut. I'll shut a door that no one can open. But there is a door that you and I have to open. This is not to unbelievers, this is to believers. When people use this to witness, they're really taking a verse out of context. It's not to unbelievers. Jesus is talking to his church. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If you will open the door, church, if you'll open the door, Ron, if you'll open the door, Bob, if you'll open the door, Dennis, I will come in and we will have supper, we'll have a meal together, like the best of friends. I have no friend like Jesus. And I bet you feel the same way, amen? So Heavenly Father, I thank you tonight for just kind of hopefully setting these nails a little deeper into our heart as we get ready to move on with Revelation. There's something in every one of these letters that I can identify with personally. Lord, I thank you for the revelation of who you are in chapter one. God, <laughs> eyes like fire. God look into my heart. Look into my heart with your blazing glory, Lord. Search my heart. Search my ways, Lord Jesus. Feet like brass. Lord, you will just simply stamp out every enemy of yours. God one day, every nation is going to bow down and every knee is going to bow. And they're going to confess to your glory and to your honor that Jesus Christ is Lord. So tonight, I ask you to send us home richer than what we came in this evening. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. If you've got any questions, good night. Next week will be, come on up hither, chapter 4.